Welcome to Rencast. My name is Kate Mile, and I run the writing support service Renco, which stands for Written English Collaboration. I love writing, but and this may sound a little sacrilegious. I prefer talking. I want the words I write to be witnessed, to have life breathed into them. Though I conceived of this episode weeks ago, life's gotten in the way. Therefore, I find myself having written, recorded, and released the entirety of this episode today, December 24th. I hope, therefore, that you're not terribly surprised or shocked that I've written some thoughts about family Christmases, all while largely being away from my family for all of Christmas Eve, abandoning my children to a marathon of the Nutcracker and the Snowman, Home Alone 2, and now maybe episodes of Pink Panther on YouTube. You'll forgive me also, I hope, for the cacophony of church bells, firecrackers, and over-sugared children in the background as I recorded. However imperfect or hasty this episode is, it is just as it should be which is to say my best and shared with you in hopes that its honesty may resonate. The episode is called Best of Times, etc. Here goes. I've been thinking recently about opening lines. You know, I'm not so sure that a reader ever craves a cracker of an opening line so badly as a writer does. Sure, when as a reader you come across those lines about happy and unhappy families or truths universally acknowledged or times at their best and their worst, it's a thrill, a surprise, and an amuse-bouche presented to you before you've even been seated. But plenty of times as readers, we're happy enough with breadsticks and over-iced glasses of tap water. You know, I think that writing an opening line is one of those disconcerting things that keeps people from writing. I think it's one of those disconcerting things that makes people realize that they're writing instead of talking. Because, you know, talking's easy. There's a script. It varies somewhat culturally, but where I'm from, it goes like this. Hi, how are you? And then no matter what the response should be, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? If you've ever read anything written by a child under the age of 10, whether it's a thank you note or a letter to Santa or a petition to parents to buy, eat, or do anything, you'll see it nearly always starts with, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. And then on with the request for a puppy or whatever. But sometime after about 10 or so, you start to realize that you actually can't start every letter or email or essay or Craigslist listing for your old snowblower with, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. And without that line, you start to realize you're not talking. You're writing. And without realization, the process of creating the opening lines changes. The body and mind's reflexive state seems to sense that writing yields vulnerability. And so some unseen chemistry occurs as the first words emerge and coagulate as if to protect you from bleeding out your thoughts. Marley was dead to begin with. Boy, that's another, that's a cracker line. And when I read an opening line like that, I can't help but think that the writer, they've somehow transcended their own humanity. They somehow managed to change that chemistry 
to train themselves to stay alive, aliver perhaps, as they bleed like some superpower endowed hemophiliac. Which of course brings me to Christmas. It was a truth universally acknowledged that a person in possession of children must be in want of the perfect Christmas. No? Alright, I didn't say it's a universal truth they can pull off the perfect Christmas. But rather, the universal truth is in the wanting of that perfect Christmas. Of course, just as in Jane Austen's time, there are no such things as universal truths, and that's why Austen puts this line in proximity to Mrs. Bennet, an unreliable narrator if there ever was one. Of course, not everyone celebrates Christmas. Of course, for some, it's a fairly routine course of drama-free decorating and cooking the holiday staples. And of course, there are many who experience holiday joy and stress with and without children. But for many, many out there, the fantasy of constructing the perfect Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving, let's throw in Halloween weddings and funerals, it's about as compelling as crafting a cracker opening line for a writer. And of course, about as paralyzing and stressful as well. There are of course nuances to each family fantasy. There are the all white light families and the colorful light families. There are the steady light families and the twinkle light families. But I'd say overall there are strong commonalities within most perfect family holiday air quotes fantasies reside. To start, there's this richness of sensation, from warmth and touching to creams and spices. There's a contrast between darkness and light, inside and outside, touching on every part of the spectrum, from shadow to glowing to sparkling to reflection. Music and laughter, the most cliched words to write, but universally beloved sounds to enjoy are meant to supplant all talk radio and TV and news displaced marital and sibling bickering alike as joy and connection unify all. That's a goddamn compelling fantasy and I don't reject a jot of it. Really, I don't. I want all those things, especially the music and laughter and some semblance of relaxation as my husband, kids, menagerie, and I enjoy family time. Of course, here's the thing. How do you make a fantasy come true while still managing to maintain the fantasy or enjoy some piece of it? I'm starting to think it's not possible. At least that's how I'm operating now on the assumption it's not possible. I definitely should have come to this conclusion long ago. Growing up, Christmas was very much a work day for both my parents, especially my dad. For most of my childhood, my dad was an Episcopalian priest, and he was never more on duty at work than Christmas and Easter. And that meant, of course, my, my mother was pulling double duty back at home. An excellent cook and florist, my mother could set a table worthy of Martha Stewart. What's more, like Miss Stewart, my mother had a collection of thoughtfully procured and sensibly stored seasonal items that would emerge on the eaves of each holiday. Porcelain bunnies and beeswax candles, glass eggs, gourds, garlands, baubles, and so on. She 
had her trove of traditional recipes for any given time of year, gazpacho and chilled butter, milk peach soup and corn pancakes in the summer, and warming root soups and nutty pies and latkes in the autumn, followed by mincemeat pies and spicy gingerbreads and oysters and stews all winter long. Yet every year she delighted also in injecting new recipes, hazelnut flour and vodka in the pie crust, creams made vegan by cashew purees, and the addition of miso or tahini and basically any savory sauce. And so my, my mother made holidays for us that was a magical mixture of tradition and experimentation. And so I, I remember very well many, many sensory aspects of even my earliest holidays at home, from the dishes we ate, to the fragrance of the fresh trees we decorated, to the warm smell of beeswax tapers, and the music. Often the same CDs year after year, The Bells of Dublin by the Chieftains, Harp Music by Patrick Ball, and then the Chapel of King's College, Cambridge, singing the lessons and carols on Christmas Day itself. It wasn't quite Martha Stewart or Richard Curtis levels of Christmas fantasy, but they were consistently magical in my family growing up, at least for me as the kid. That being said, I do also remember a bitterness at the edges of Christmas, especially when it was time for the tree to be taken down. Boy, oh boy, my mom hated repacking the ornaments and putting the lights back in their boxes and rearranging the garage to absorb the boxes for another year and vacuuming the needles out of every crevice once the tree had been removed because for the most part she was doing it alone. These tasks, of course, aren't inherently joyful. And, of course, her resentful mood that my dad didn't help more willingly made it all the more unappealing for anyone to partake in even though I I now understand her perspective in a way I didn't at the time. Meanwhile, my dad had direct most of his Christmas energy at work and returned home, likely just wanting a rest from it all. But again, as I understand better now myself, home is rarely a space of rest for parents, whether they stay at home or work outside the home. And so... The all-too-inevitable clash of yuletide exhaustion and disconnection rumbled throughout the season, fraying the edges of the fantasy, and that I remember also. How fitting, then, perhaps, that our family's favorite Christmas movie, which I enjoyed with my own children again last night, was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, man. How desperate is Clark W. Griswold to create the perfect holiday for his family? And as you watch, you just have to ask yourself, how much sanity is he willing to sacrifice and humiliation to endure in the pursuit of that fantasy? And how many times did his house almost catch on fire? To me, Clark, played by Chevy Chase, is the American version of Basil Fawlty. Maybe with a slightly longer fuse, but the explosion is no less epic when inevitably things inevitably don't go his way. So, let me be clear. I'm no Clark Griswold or Martha Stewart. I'm not all in. But I'm not all out either. I'm not Scrooge. I'm not Buddy's dad and elf. 
But the thing is, all these Christmas stories, and yes, I include Martha Stewart as a story, all these Christmas stories work best when you've got someone who's all in or all out. And like most stories, it's hard not to bring the archetypes and mannerisms of stories over into your real life. This seems especially easy to me at Christmas, when the lines between story and memory, fantasy and reality, fun and FOMO, joy and anxiety are all as shaky as the sugar piping gluing a gingerbread house together. What is Christmas, after all, without its stories? Without the relentless construction of tales of hope or unity? charity, or love, or glamour, or whatever else. And so that's why, as a writer, I'd argue that Christmas is one of the most important times of year to keep stories at an arm's length, or, counterintuitively, to draw them close enough to shape them. So what do I mean by that? Well, Okay, first of all, when I say that this is one of the most important times of year, I'm not saying that within the structure of a spiritual reason. Rather, what I'm saying is the stakes of this time of year have become so high that the holidays are exceptionally dangerous, really, for people's physical, mental, and emotional health. Holiday stress hits hard on parents, especially women who continue to bear the brunt of traditionally gendered responsibilities such as cooking, cleaning, entertaining, gift buying, and wrapping, and then some more cleaning and cooking, and more cleaning and cleaning. What's more, the holidays are a time of extraordinary loneliness and financial stress and FOMO. Too often, we speak of surviving the holidays as glib saying that betrays a grim reality. Experts such as those in the New York Times articles I've linked in the transcript of this episode account for many of the physical, mental, and emotional effects of holiday stress. I wish here to add my perspective as a writer that much of this stress comes also from the friction of reality meeting the fantasies we've constructed. And I don't just mean constructed on an individual level. The marketing machine of capitalism has very much led the way in setting up these expectations in our head of how to buy our way to a perfect holiday experience. So when I talk about this being an important time of year to hold the stories at arm's length, it's actually these stories I'm talking about. Because with the benefit of some distance, we can hopefully see better who has created these stories and why. And this is also why I have taken to actively reshaping my story about the family holiday experience. Because if I let Pinterest and Amazon shape the story, I will do nothing every December but stress myself into craft failures, which will lead to heavy drinking, which will lead to reckless online purchases of the items I just tried to make myself. Bad habits lead to you, as Ed Sheeran tells us. Preach it, brother. Okay, back to reshaping the story. And just to be clear, I did. I did. I spent years of parenthood 
trying to uphold the fantasy for myself and my kids. And those were just mostly shitty years. So totally the opposite of merry and happy and jolly. But when you pause to reflect, to write, and to push past the initial hesitation of the opening line, you'll manage to process stories past and begin to conceive of stories future. No ghost required. Recently, I've been writing and I've been asking myself, how can I make Christmas magical again for me so I can enjoy my kids' winter break without turning into a ball of stress and erupting like Chevy Chase every 15 minutes? And so through this process of writing and dictating to my notes app as I drive and run errands, I've begun to identify a new configuration of Christmas for this year. Beginning by asking myself what elements of the fantasy are actually possible and appealing. And it turns out the absolute easiest ones, for me at least, are the creams and spices I mentioned earlier. I love to cook. Pretty goddamn good at it too. And that part's just easy and definitely satisfying. Mm, I'm gonna I'm a post a link to a gingerbread situation that I made. Oh, it was so good. Lights. Lights. Lights are pretty easy too. Having moved from northern New England to central Mexico, I am still kind of dazzled to have sunlight past 3.30 p.m. in the depths of midwinter. But this year, we procured five shiny Christmas pinatas and strung them up in our front yard on sturdy lengths of tinsel, reinforced by meters and meters of fairy lights. And it's just the best. It's the best! I flippin' love seeing their colorful tassels dance in the breeze and the shiny cones reflect back all light, whether it's from the sun or the moon or the twinkles. It's the best. And as my reflection process continued, I came to realize that the very hardest elements of the fantasy to make real for me are the music and laughter. And, of course, those are the things I crave most of all. But here's the truth. My kids are going to fight about anything, anywhere, any time of year. But the main reason we're not going to have a quiet Christmas. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Right. Okay. The main reason we're not going to have the quiet Christmas of my childhood. I'm literally realizing this in real time as I write this. I'm literally figuring this out right now. It's because I was an only child. Of course there's no sibling bickering. And even though my parents fought a bit around the holidays, for the most part my dad was at work. We definitely didn't fight in the hours we spent at church, so so that's why I want this quiet Christmas. And that's why here I am now all these years later craving this auditory experience that just isn't going to happen. But it's a realization like this that my experience only comes when examining the story and literally rewriting it. All right. Wow. Okay. So hours at home of music and harmony, they got to come off the list. It's not to say they go away altogether, but I need to seek the sensation in the other way. Huh. It's actually, it's kind of the same thing with decorations. Now I think of it. 
I left behind my collection of ornaments when we left Maine, not realizing we'd be staying away for more than one Christmas. And on one hand, I definitely miss certain ornaments. They're like beloved relatives you see only at the holidays before packing them up and they go away again. But for these few years we're in Mexico, our tree simply won't look the same. And it's, it's kind of lovely. There's no big sort through storage bins and the cold garage and disappointment of discovering a box that got dropped mid-year and all its contents are in shards and there's no hunt for the Christmas bunt pan. There are no lights to untangle. And we got our tree this year just a couple days ago for five bucks. It's a little Norfolk pine in a pot and I, I put on it a box of $2 baubles from Walmart strung on pieces of yarn. No lights on the tree because they're outside of the pinatas, but I've never not been stressed putting up or taking down a Christmas tree. I freaking love it. It turns out I experienced more joy from the relaxation of this holiday than any collection of trinkets, no matter how dear I'd amassed. And so with this minimally decorated home, that sounds less like the chapel of King's College Cambridge on Christmas morning and more like a scene from the Gremlins. I'm left to wonder how I can satisfy those sensations for Christmas that I'm craving. And some of my solutions may surprise you. So let me tell you what I do to get a hit of Christmas. Three things, each more embarrassing than the last. Number one, I'm visiting a lot of public spaces these days. Spaces decorated by municipal authorities that are big, maximalist displays that I'm not responsible for hanging or storing. Sometimes I don't even need to plan on visiting them. I just get a hit as I drive home on my way back from errands. And number two, I'm watching a lot of Christmas movies this year. My God, Catherine O'Hara, a.k.a. Kevin's mom, a.k.a. set decorator Eve Colley, knows how to decorate a home for Christmas. And so does everyone in love, actually. Not to mention Bridget's mom and Bridget Jones' diary and, of course, the Griswolds. I mean, who am I to compete? Why even try? Did you know that Emmys were won for Christmas decorations on the West Wing? I did. And that's why I watch season two, episode 10, named Noel every year, and why I rewatch Christmas episodes from Friends and 30 Rock and Community and ER, basically any NBC show from the 90s and early 2000s, because those shows know how to make you feel like Christmas without having to vacuum up all the damn needles twice a day. Yeah. And number three, by far the most embarrassing, I've taken to going to the mall. I know what I said earlier about the marketing machine of capitalism, but hey, I'm making it work for me. There are some flippin' glorious displays in the malls near me. I can enjoy the preposterously large branded photo op tree with its enormous baubles and fake presents, like I said, and amuse bouche at the start of a fabulous dinner is amazing, but breadsticks and water or a peppermint mocha from a mall Starbucks, sometimes it does the trick. Look, it's so easy to be a kid at Christmas. It's as simple as writing a letter to Santa. Dear Santa Claus, Hi, it's me, Kate. How are you? I'm fine. What I want for Christmas is, and all that stuff. But as a grown-up, when you're helping your kid write the letter that you're going to receive, and then what the fuck do you do with it? How do you begin? 
How do you not just seize up with stress or lay down your credit card to feel like you're actually doing something to make this a good Christmas? Look, I admire the folks who can make a cracker of a Christmas. My hat goes off to Martha Stewart and the Hollywood set decorators, just as I admire those writers who will be remembered for their first lines. Vonnegut had some good ones, and you can't forget Shakespeare, but if we all waited to write the perfect first line, most of us would never write anything. And writing is too important, a process to let stress stop us at line zero. It's the same thing for Christmas. That family time, that infusion of sensation, that annual revisitation of elves and ghosts and other fantastic creatures, it's too important a ritual to be sunk by stress. And I think the way out of a toxic narrative is the active creation of a new one. I don't think we honor great last lines in literature as much as the opening lines. And probably it's because not all of us made it to the end. But it also just seems easier to release a reader than to capture one. However, that's not always been my experience. If you listen through this podcast, you'll encounter many an episode that ends with an expression of regret that I don't have a better ending. One thing I will say for Christmas, however, is that at least where I'm from, there's a pretty firm ending to the holiday. And that's the day when municipal authorities pick up the trees left the roadside. This free alternative to hauling your tree to the dump and paying a fee seems like a better motivator to remove lights and repack ornaments and vacuum up needles than anything else I've seen. Fantasies, you see, end in reality. One of my favorite last lines in literature is from the end of Sir Walter Scott's novel, Waverly. You've probably never read the book, and if you did, I doubt you made it to this line since the novel is so dense with not particularly good historical romance, but I took a course on it in college and was therefore forcibly compelled to read the whole thing. Towards the end, actually not exactly the last line, not even the last page, but something like the second to last, all the characters have gathered together seeing each other for the first time in ages and reminiscing about all their old adventures. And they tell to each other the story that we've just read in the preceding hundreds of pages and in the retelling the story has shifted somewhat, but they don't seem to have mind. So happy are they to be basking together in their shared memories. That is, until the author interjects with the line I alluded to. Men must, however, eat. Which is to say, at the end of the story, even at the end of the memory, is the reality of your body and its needs. You may have just adventured and romanced your way through the Scottish Highlands and survived a war and lived to tell the tale, but ultimately, you're human. And so the story, the talking pauses, and the book ends. Stories and writing don't solve everything. They can help or hurt a holiday. Basically, just like Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas can absolutely make the climax of Richard Curtis's movie Love Actually or make you want to abandon your cart mid-shop when you hear it playing at the hardware store in mid-October. Narratives are powerful. But more powerful than that is taking care of yourself. 
Men must, however, eat. I love that, especially at this time of year. So remember, go take a walk outside from time to time. Need something nourishing, and most of all, on a clear night, remember to look up at the stars. And with that, I want to wish you all a good night, happy holidays, and a peaceful new year. I'll see you in 2023. Thank you for listening to Rencast. Please subscribe and spread the word about our little show. By the way, a transcript of this and every episode lives at rencowriting.com slash podcast. If you would like help becoming more confident in yourself and your writing, head over to rencowriting.com. I can help with personal, professional, and creative projects, as well as admissions and application essays. I'll be there if you want another chair pulled up to your writing desk.